Welcome to another Alive at Springwood podcast, brought to you by Springwood Presbyterian Churches, where we don't believe churches are buildings. Churches are people. Disciples of Jesus bound together in diversity by God's love, while pursuing faithfulness and vulnerability, celebration and lament, reading the Bible and prayer. May you be encouraged and God glorified by this edition. Yeah, so it's a very confronting passage, that passage from Ezekiel. Um, I was reading through Ezekiel recently, and that passage really captured my attention and sat with me for quite a long time. Uh, I think it rattled me a little bit, disrupted me. Uh, and uh, so this sermon, we, we spoke about this at Winmalee about probably six weeks ago, and uh, I'm glad to have the opportunity to look at this passage because it's it's rich and challenging. But before we start, I just want to draw your attention to some of the language we heard in those Bible readings, the language of groaning in Romans. And then in the Ezekiel passage, it talked about the people who sigh, uh, grieve, grieve and lament. Uh, a word in different translations that, that keeps coming up there is sighing. It wasn't there in those readings. But groaning can be translated as sighing. And we understand that they're similar sorts of ways of expressing what's wrong in the world. And we sigh for lots of different reasons, but sighing is the language that I'm focusing on today, and both of those passages speak of it. Um, I'm not sure how many of you are familiar with the British band Mumford and Sons. Many, many of you know Mumford and Sons? I, I've, I haven't listened to them all that much, I have to say, but I discovered one of their albums recently, and, and the album's titled Sigh No More. Some of you might have heard some of the music in there. And it's quite a sombre album, and every song expresses lament at some part of life not being the way that it should be. But there's also in each of the songs a longing for something more. And in some ways, the whole album is like one big sigh. And in one of their songs, they describe a sigh in this way. They, they say... It's a cry of my heart to see the beauty of love as it was made to be. I quite like that description, a cry of my heart, a longing. And while there's many reasons why we might sigh, often our sighs are that cry of the heart, something from deep within us that just has to get out. There are a lament that things are not as they should be, but also a longing for truth, beauty and goodness to invade and take over the world. So I'm not sure about you guys, I think as Heather shared a moment ago, and as I look around at what's happening in the world, I've found myself sighing a lot lately. I suspect it's a build-up of the last few years, there's frustrations, turmoil. I sighed a lot recently when we heard about the news of the tragic shootings that took place in the US about six weeks ago. And, and it happened every week. I sigh for the Ukraine and the atrocities that Putin is unleashing. I sigh for countries where conflict is a perpetual reality. I've been sighing for a 
family, a family connected with our church out at Winmalee, whose daughter, four-year-old daughter, has been diagnosed with incurable cancer, brain cancer. I've sighed over my own sin and the times when I've not spoken with wisdom and compassion. What's made you sigh recently? Pressures at work, wars and rumours of wars around the world, arguments and tension in the home, sickness, loss, grief. The reason this passage in Ezekiel really stood out to me is because it describes this vision where the faithful people of Jerusalem aren't recognised by doing anything particularly amazing. They don't seem to be turning the city upside down as they relentlessly follow the law. They aren't standing on the street corners calling out for people to repent. The faithful people in this vision are known and identified simply by their sighing and their groaning. So we're going to explore this passage in a little bit more depth now. How about I pray as we we look at it in more detail? Lord God, you call your people to lament that the world is broken. And lament is a part of responding and seeing our need, the world's need for a saviour, for a good God who will make things right. And there's a longing in our hearts for rest and peace and an end to evil. And so, Lord, as we reflect on some of the things we've already heard tonight of the the struggles that people face, of the the trouble in our world, Lord, may you uh, bring us hope through your word now. And may our longings be met in Jesus. Amen. So this passage in Ezekiel, if you do have it there in front of you, it's worth following along. It's important for us to understand the context of this passage. Very important. So this is part of a vision. It's a middle part of a three-part vision that God gives to Ezekiel. So we need to start by understanding this is not a description of literal historical events that take place. If it was, I think we'd struggle very much with this passage. This is a vision that God's given to Ezekiel to describe the judgment that's about to come on Jerusalem. And in the previous chapter, in the first part of this vision, God takes Ezekiel on a tour of Jerusalem. And at each location, God shows Ezekiel what the people are doing. So on the first stop, he sees the people of Jerusalem worshipping the goddess Asherah. And we aren't given a description of what that kind of worship entailed, but we know from other texts that the worship of Asherah involved all kinds of depraved sexual activity. And on his second stop, Ezekiel digs through a wall to find that the leaders of Jerusalem, the elders of Jerusalem, are all hiding in secret, burning incense to the gods of Egypt. And we know particularly to to Baal, it would seem. And we know that the worship of these gods involved child sacrifice. And we find out in other parts of Ezekiel that that's what's going on in Ezekiel, in, in Jerusalem at the time. 
Ezekiel's tour culminates at the temple of God. And inside the temple, the priests have gathered down, bowing down to worship. But instead of facing the Holy of Holies, bowing down to worship Yahweh, they are turned with their backs to God, facing out of the temple and worshipping the sun. So even in the midst of God's house, those responsible for practising and leading worship for all of Jerusalem are utterly tied up with the evil that's going on in that city. And it all paints a really horrible picture of life in Jerusalem, to the point where Jerusalem, Israel, has become more depraved and evil and wicked than the nations they chased out before them. And we need to grasp just how horrendous life had become in Jerusalem. This city was a place of injustice, idol worship and utter depravity. And a good God could not let such evil continue forever. And let's be honest, nor, nor would we want him to, right? After centuries of God patiently warning and rescuing Israel, their sin, their evil needed to end. Now, there's nothing easy about reading of God's judgment. And even though this is just a symbolic vision, it's hard to hear God giving instructions for people to be killed. And we know that as Jerusalem was overthrown by Babylon, thousands and thousands of Israelites were killed by the invading force. But one thing I find comforting is knowing that God acted to save Judah, to save Israel and Jerusalem from this bloodshed. So we need to go to Jeremiah and get another angle at this story. Because in Jeremiah, God sends a warning through his prophet Jeremiah to the king of Israel. And he says, surrender to Babylon. You aren't going to win this fight. If you surrender, you can avoid all this bloodshed. Listen to my word, heed my words, do not fight Babylon. But the king in his arrogance, refuses to listen. In his pride, he digs his heels in and many lives are lost. So the king brings trouble down on his own head, even as God acts to save them from this calamity. So we see a kind of pattern emerge. Warren, have we got slides there? So we see this kind of pattern emerging, and this is a pattern that we see throughout, uh, throughout Scripture. God will not let evil continue forever. He's a good God. Uh, next one, Warren. But he longs to judge graciously saving lives. We see God's judgment always tied up with his grace, grace and we see that in, in, in this story as well, in the way that God warns the king. But finally, oh, I did work that time, Warren. Yet, humans are responsible agents who can heed God's saving words or reject them at a cost. 
And this kind of pattern emerges here in this passage of Ezekiel. And, and so one of the purposes of this vision, I think, is to confront us with just how messy and horrible and complex the problem of sin is. There's no easy or simple solution, no, nothing simple about it. And we're meant to feel turmoil as we read this passage. But what captures my attention and what really captured my attention in this passage wasn't the message of judgment or the six fearsome warriors who come bearing deadly weapons, but this man wearing linen who stands beside them with a writing kit. It's almost comedic that in this scene of judgment, there's this character wearing linen with a writing kit. He provides such a stark contrast to these characters who are wielding the weapons. And this strange priestly character is given one task, to be an agent of God's saving grace as he goes about marking the foreheads of the faithful. And God says to the linen-clad writer, that, who, as he marks the foreheads, he says, mark the foreheads of those who sigh and groan over all the detestable things that are done in Jerusalem, all those things we heard about before. You know, it's one thing to sigh and groan over sin when we see it from afar. We, we look at Putin's actions against the Ukraine and we easily identify that as terrible. We see shootings in the US and we lament the horror. But it's not always so easy to identify sin when it's become normalised by our culture when we've been raised or immersed in a world that sometimes calls evil good and good evil. What about our culture? The water that we swim in. What about the rampant sexualization of our culture? Or the horrific number of children being aborted? What about the consumerism that's trained us to treat people like goods that can be purchased to use and abuse one another? What about the issues of injustice in our society and the plight of our Indigenous peoples? Or that Australians lose $25 billion on gambling each year and our government enables it? It's easy to become numb to those kinds of issues when we swim in that water. And I imagine that it was similar in Jerusalem. Sin and idolatry had become the norm. It was the water they were swimming in. Perhaps few people even batted an eyelid at what was going on, at the atrocities going on around them. But there were some, perhaps not many, but some who looked around them and their hearts grew heavy. Some who remembered that God had called them to be a blessing and not a curse. Some who closed their eyes in anguish and exhaled deep, deep sighs because of the evil all around them. Some who sought to live against the tide of culture and cling to the way of God. Some who longed for Jerusalem to be different. They were the sighing faithful in the story. Throughout Scripture, we see God's people sighing. In Psalm 38, the psalmist writes, 
I am feeble and utterly crushed. I groan in anguish of heart. All my longings lie open before you, Lord. My sighing is not hidden from you. In Exodus chapter 2, Israel is described as groaning and sighing in the bondage of slavery, longing for rescue, crying out to God for help. But it's not just God's people who sigh. God sighs too. In the book of Mark, Jesus is described as sighing deeply two times. The first occurs in Mark 7 when he heals a deaf and mute man. But in the next chapter, Jesus lets out an even deeper sigh. And the language, the word that's used, describes this sigh that comes from deep down within, upwards and out. Jesus has just fed 4,000 people with bread and a group of Pharisees come up to him. And it reads, to test him, they asked him for a sign from heaven. He sighed deeply and said, why does this generation ask for a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given to it. Then he left them, got back into his boat and crossed to the other side. Jesus is frustrated. He sighs with frustration at the faithlessness of the Pharisees. Rather than celebrating and believing the testimony of 4,000 people who have just been fed, they demand more proof. They have to see it with their own eyes. They have to experience for, for, for it themselves. And I suspect that Jesus' sigh is not just for the Pharisees, but for all of humanity and our continual demand for more proof. It's a sigh of frustration, but also a sigh that stems out of a deep longing for people to hear and believe. Everyone sighs. Whether we're God's people or not, everyone recognises that there are things deeply wrong with the world. But faithful sighs are a little bit different. They aren't sighs of despair. They aren't sighs that we smile away and pretend aren't there either. Romans 8 that we heard earlier and some of it's there on the screen says, we know that the whole creation has been sighing or groaning in the, as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, sigh inwardly as we await eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. Faithful sighing is a lament at the evil and brokenness in and around us. But it's also a trusting sigh that turns us to the one who is at work now, acting against evil, making things right and pouring out grace. And faithful sighs also reflect a hopeful longing for the day when the whole creation takes one final sigh. But this time a sigh of everlasting peace. We do not sigh like the world because Jesus has overcome the world. I want to suggest three reasons why it's important for us to sigh deeply as an act of faith. 
Firstly, faithful sighing laments a world gone wrong. If we don't sigh deeply at the world, then perhaps we've grown numb to the brokenness and the evil around us. Perhaps we've grown so accustomed to it that we don't notice it anymore. Sighing is an antidote to this because it reminds us the world isn't the way it's meant to be and I don't want to be a part of the problem. Those deep sighs are an expression of the turmoil in our hearts escaping in wordless breaths and groans. And there are times when we just don't know what to do or to say. When there is nothing, we in our limitedness, our creatureliness, when there's nothing we can do or say. In the book of Job, as he sits in the ash heap after the grief of losing his family and his home and his body is covered in sores, he says this, For sighing has become my daily food. My groans pour out like water. Sometimes the only way to give expression to the pain and sorrow we experience is to sigh and to groan. In Romans 8, it says that when we don't have words to express our prayers and thoughts, the Holy Spirit speaks through sighs and groans. When we sigh and groan, the Spirit is often at work moving us through lament towards trust and hope. Secondly, faithful sighing expresses longing. I imagine many of you remember the movie The Truman Show. Truman's a man who's born and grows up inside a fake world, a giant television set where everyone around him is an actor. And though the world he lives in is small, neat and simple, though every relationship is fake, he lives quite happily accepting the world as it is. But then he starts to notice that something is just not right. People go off script. Protesters invade the show. Sets start to fall apart. And he begins to realise there is something deeply wrong with this world. But this inspires in him a longing to find a bigger, better world. And the rest of the movie is about his search and struggle to get there. When we sigh, our eyes are being opened to a world that is not as it should be. Our sighs are like the light switching on for Truman. And our sighs inspire a deep longing for something more. They encourage us to look behind the set for the empty lies, to check behind the paintings on the wall for the hidden switch to call out the brokenness around us and say, God has something better in store. I was reading an article the other day and and the author writes this, maybe one day when Emmanuel is our everyday experience, that's God with us, we'll look back on this life of lonely exile and feel gratitude for how the sighs and sorrows made us hungrier for the everlasting feast and the fullness of joy that will be ours forever. I love that thought, that there's even purpose to the sighing and the groaning. 
Finally, faithful sighing teaches us to trust. Sighing often reflects a sense of powerlessness, a sigh because it's all too much, a sense that things are too difficult to change. Now, if there's no good God, such a thought is terribly deflating. But if we know that all things are in God's hands, and this sense of powerlessness, this sighing, this giving up, can be a really helpful response because it pushes us to trust the one who is powerful. In our world, when we sigh deeply, we search for comfort wherever we can. Without the hope of a powerful God, where would we turn? Momentary pleasures, the pursuit of wealth, the distraction of busyness, a vague spirituality that gives some sense of meaning but is grounded in emptiness. You know, Isaiah 35 expresses words of healing and hope for the future. It, it simply reads this, sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Scripture presents us with a God who speaks words of hope into the world, whose only son came to be that hope as he sighed his final breath only to rise again in victory over sin and evil, who marks us not with ink that washes away, but with the blood of the eternal lamb. And so we sigh, we long, we live as followers of a sighing king, acting to bring hope and wholeness to our friends and neighbours who are groaning under the weight of it all. And all the while, we celebrate the many moments of beauty in this time of tension that point to a time when the sighs of lament are replaced with one final cosmic sigh of peace. So I want to invite you to continue sighing deeply as an act of faith. Like the faithful of Jerusalem, to sigh deeply at the evil around us and that we are immersed in ourselves. To sigh in grief at the tragedy of illness and disease where the brokenness of the world is apparent. To sigh with love for our friends and family that we long to hear and believe. To sigh with hope as we courageously let God use us as a soothing balm for a lamenting world. And to sigh with longing until we collectively exhale one final time and join our King in proclaiming, it is finished. Let us pray. Lord God, each of us come here to gather together this evening with different things we are sighing over, things we lament, maybe things in our past or things in the present that burden us and weigh heavily on our hearts. You have made and gifted us such a good world, Lord, and yet we see the brokenness and the effects of our, our sin, the ways in which our hasty words hurt others, the ways in which our thoughtless actions cause pain, the ways in which violence 
and pride and selfishness taint this reality. And we lament, Lord. Sometimes we just don't know what to say, so we sigh. May your spirit help us to sigh faithfully. Yes, in frustration and lament, but also in hope and assurance, knowing that you are our God who sighs along with us and who is working to make all things right. Thank you that you walk alongside us, that you know our pain. We turn to you, Lord. We put our trust in you. Amen.